Welcome to the African Climate Breakdown podcast, a show on climate change with a particular focus on Africa. I'm your host, Dr. Suzanne Carter, and I lead the coordination unit of the Future Climate for Africa Research Program, or FCFA, a program that works to improve the understanding of how Africa's climate is changing, how that affects communities, and what can be done to create a climate-resilient future. Join us as we delve into the innovative research of FCFA and hear on-the-ground stories of climate change in Africa. In the last episode, we discussed the impact of climate change on our water resources and how we need to plan for climate change to ensure future water supplies, particularly for African cities. This time around, we will explore how cities across the continent are responding to the varying effects of climate change. My co-host today, Brenda Mwalukanga, is no stranger to those of you who have been following our series. In our last episode, Brenda joined us as a guest to discuss some of her experiences as an embedded researcher in Lusaka as part of the Fractal Project. Thank you for being here, Brenda. I'm looking forward to hearing more of your great insights. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and remind us about your role as an embedded researcher? Thank you, Suzanne. I'm so happy to be here. As an embedded researcher, I fulfill the same role as Cornelia, who was the co-host on the previous podcast. Essentially, we are the bridges that communicate between policy and research. I worked within Fracto um, in Lusaka between the University of uh, Zambia and Lusaka City Council under the city planning department. I worked as an embedded researcher for four years and I first got involved in 2016. What I most enjoyed about the job was that I was moving between writing a lot of different products, blogs, articles, and actually uh, continuing to practice as um, a planner within uh, the city of Lusaka. That's amazing. I think being in a position where you are working in between the academic and decision-making worlds is so important in dealing with climate change. Could you share some of your experiences? And what did you find most challenging and rewarding about being in this position? Uh, the thing I found most challenging is that I needed to learn um, aspects that I wasn't um, very um, deeply conversant with uh, on the basis of my background being a social scientist. So I had to learn a lot of the climate science and how to um, communicate it from a technical aspect to more digestible pieces. Uh, but ultimately, I ended up appreciating it because Fractal required um, always using a learning approach and as we continue to come out with um, new um, bits of information that ultimately you benefit from. And what I found most rewarding is that um, two years after the Fractal project has ended, uh, Lusaka decision makers and uh, policymakers, technocrats are still using some of the products that we co-developed um, during this um, project, such as the policy briefs, uh, the climate narratives, uh, some of the reports that we did around the learning labs and the dialogues. So for me, that is uh, that was rewarding and it's still rewarding. Cities are particularly at risk to the impacts of climate change, but are also well positioned to lead the charge in delivering innovative solutions to tackle climate change. African cities have a difficult set of challenges to deal with. Rapid population growth, as well as rapid environmental, economic and social change, which present their own issues. And all of these are magnified by climate change. This is particularly relevant in rapidly expanding informal settlements, where a high number of people are concentrated in small areas that are often unplanned, lack access to basic services, and are particularly exposed to climate risks. Sub-Saharan Africa is regarded as the world's fastest urbanizing region. According to UN Habitat, 
urban areas in sub-Saharan Africa are currently home to over 500 million people and are likely to reach a billion, with the majority of Africa's population living in cities by 2035. With 55% of Africa's city dwellers already living in informal settlements or slums, the growing numbers of urban residents present a range of challenges and opportunities for the continent. Different cities across the African continent are dealing with this and other issues to varying degrees. The question is, how do cities deal with climate change while grappling with these existing challenges? As much as cities may be the epicenter of these challenges, they can also serve as hubs for the greatest change. In order to help us unpack some of the challenges and consider how do we go about creating solutions, we've invited a number of FCFA researchers to discuss further the impacts of climate change on African cities. Along with Brenda's expertise, we're joined today by Dr. Maimuna Boloko Traore, a researcher and lecturer at the International Institute for Water and Environmental Engineering in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso. She has been working with the AMA 2050 team to understand how communities respond to flooding in Ouagadougou. We also have Janito Maure, an associate professor at Eduardo Modlane University in Maputo, Mozambique. Janito worked as a co-principal investigator as part of the Fractal Project work in Maputo. Thank you both for joining us. Brenda, we've already alluded to the rapid growth of cities in Africa and how that means we have more people living in informal settlements. I wonder if you would tell us a bit more about this in the context of Lusaka and why informal settlements are so vulnerable to climate change. Okay, so Lusaka is uh, 70% informal. We have over 40 settlements within the city, but uh, there should be about 34 wards uh, or settlements that uh, have uh, come about due to informality. And this means that they lack basic services like um, infrastructure, um, proper housing, and even drainages that even when uh, a normal rainfall comes about, the water is not able to flow out. And more importantly, we have a majority of the people um, living within the city of Lusaka and uh, high, uh, highly densely populated informal settlements. And so the number of people that are affected by floods and that are vulnerable to climate change is also quite significant in terms of uh, the numbers and population as well. Maimuna, in our first episode, we learned a bit about megastorms in West Africa and how these intense storms are increasing the flood risks. Could you tell us more about flooding in Ouagadougou and how the community copes with flooding? Okay, thank you to give me the floor. In the context of Ouagadougou, as you said that uh, due to the climate extremes, we are attracted by the nature of the occupation of space, sanitation problem, and uh, also the waste management. That are the different things who can accentuate the flooding risk. And we can have also the urban space planning in which uh, waterways are not always uh, sufficiently uh, taken into account. That is uh, the situation. And how um, the, the city prepare uh, for the climate change? They have a normal uh, national plan for uh, adaptation about the issue. That is a national plan that applied in the city of Rugadugu. We have uh, some activity like uh, the cleaning of the, the cleaning of the gutters of gutters because every every year when the it is the, the time of uh, during before the starting of raining season, the municipality uh, 
paid for the cleaning of the different gutters in order that during the raining season, uh, this can have a clean place, allowed water to to go at the good way. Also, we can notice that uh, they try to give some piece of advice for the different uh, people in order to know what they can uh, be, do everything be careful during the rainy season also. That is another aspect of the activity that the municipality, the city did. And in which concerns specifically the different communities or for their own house, it depends. Sometimes some people move because they know that the, their house is in the flooding risk zone. They try to move and change. That is a person generally who are not uh, the owners of their own house. And the other activity is to try to, to have a concrete around the, around the house also, or to make specifically some wall in the, uh, the cavity in the wall in order to allow the running water to, to go out of the house components also. That is a kind of strategy developed by the people also. Janito, uh, Mozambique is no stranger to extreme climate events. In 2018, you had cyclones die and Kenneth causing major damage to the country. Could you tell us a bit about the kind of climate risks Maputo is facing both currently and what is expected in the future due to climate change? Uh, so after die, what I would say is uh, our awareness has again, I mean, taken to another level. So we are somehow uh, we have somehow gained knowledge on uh, on what climate uh, climate impact can be. I mean, at different places uh, in, in, in the country. So Idai happened in the central Mozambique, and Kenneth in the northern part of Mozambique. You may be aware that Mozambique is like uh, two thousand and eight hundred kilometers of uh, coastline. So there are different climate uh, effects happening there. So for the case of Maputo, although we are in the southern tip of the country, uh, we do face more or less the same problems, or at least we have a sort of a mixed kind of problems because we are also hit by tropical cyclones. We are hit by uh, wind gales. We are hit by, by, by droughts. So we are hit by urban flooding, peri-urban flooding. So this is the kind of uh, events that we have to, to face in, uh, like you know, every, every two, every five, every 10 years once, and then we are always facing these kind of, of risks and we have to deal with them. Janito, as part of the Fractal Project, a health hazard map was developed for the city of Maputo. Could you tell us about the kind of health risks climate change poses to Maputo and how this digital tool can help the city respond to climate change? As I mentioned before, uh, if you are having floods, if you're having droughts, and if you're having, for example, strong winds, you're having different impacts on, on, on health. So what we were trying to uh, focus on was on a tool that was uh, mostly concerned with the diseases that are, are more are, are more frequently than those that are are causing uh, major damage. As you can imagine, we have major problems with uh, cholera. We do have uh, big problems with with malaria, and so on. So the biggest one we chose malaria because uh, first it's uh, one of the uh, we call it mandatory uh, reporting kind of uh, disease. 
And second, because we were engaging with their partner during the Fractal project that was very much interested in predicting malaria outbreaks, we decided to choose malaria. So somehow we 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 allowed them to form us and uh, together we collaborate in terms of producing this uh, this tool. It's a tool that allows the, the decision makers to allocate uh, proper logistics in terms of preparedness uh, and re- response in case there is um, a hotspot that has been forecasted uh, to, to, to have a malaria outbreak. So that allows the government, for example, to allocate means for spraying, uh, for, for, for mosquito spraying. If, uh, uh, if that fails, it also allows the government to allocate uh, uh, mosquito, the distribution of mosquito, to prioritize the distribution of mosquito nets, this kind of things. Yeah. And, uh, now that that idea has been uh, scaled up and is working together now with the Minister of Health, the Minister of Health doesn't want that to be only for Maputo, although the project was initially for Maputo. They have now involved the team and they want us to be uh, working, I mean, countrywide. Has this new system for the tool been enacted yet? Has there been a, a trigger where an event has happened and um, the protocols have, have been used? yet? Or is it still too early for that to have happened? Uh, in fact, what happened is that uh, we, we, at the beginning, we were facing issues with the data that we wanted to, because this, this is a tool that needs uh, sort of data from past to be able to, I mean, just to fine tune it so that we know that, okay, this, this, uh, this, this tool is able to replicate uh, what happened in the past. So it's a sort of a, a validation process it has to go through. And it was being very difficult to get this data. Now that the data is available, there is this um, a will uh, from the government to don't test it only in Maputo because Maputo is not the only hot, the biggest hotspot, in fact, is Nampula province. <laughs> so uh, what I did, uh, I've got a, a, a master's student who is doing that for Nampula. We want, that, we want him to validate that so that we can uh, somehow deploy that uh, system. He's now finalizing his MSc project. I think uh, hopefully that that will allow us to get clearance to, 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 to release the tool the way we wanted it to do. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to ask a question of all three of you now. I wonder if you could each share with me some of your experiences about how best to engage with city decision makers to co-create solutions to climate risks. Can we start with Brenda? Uh, sure, Suzanne. Um, I think what we learned within the city of Lusaka was the recognition that um, there are different types of decision makers within the city ranging from policymakers, political decision makers, community members, and even technocrats. And we need to be cognizant of the fact that each of these come with their own um, mandate and interests that need to be taken care of. And as we discuss uh, the impacts of climate change, some of them may um, give rise to tension and uh, conflict that will need to be resolved. So going in to speak about climate change using a learning approach is also about conflict resolution and ensuring that that conflict and that tension is resolved so that you come up with co-created solutions that deal not only with the physical uh, responses to climate change, like drainages and, you know, um, better um, uh, uh, flood risk management or even pollution prevention, but also um, qualitative solutions such as um, uh, 
perhaps having more platforms or forums where you can regularly discuss the problems that are manifesting due to climate change. So it's about recognizing the different interests, always coming in to ensure that um, you are willing to resolve the conflict, but also clearly communicating that the the end result that we're looking for is co-creation and climate, um, preve- uh, climate risk prevention and mitigation. Thanks, Brenda. And Maimuna, what are your experiences? Okay, for our experience in the uh, AMA 2050 project, uh, first of all, for the beginning of uh, project activity, we have been in contact with the state department and services in charge of urban planning issues, the meteorological services and the municipal authority. And also, um, I can add that we have also in contact with the National Committee of uh, Emergency Issue. And uh, with uh, all of the different partners, and uh, we, when we have, first of all, we, we made a contact with them. We did sort of some surveys to carry out uh, with the decision makers and the implication for the various information and communication activities we were carrying out to make it possible to identify and to take into account the expectation of decision-making as far as possible. The most important thing that during the different meetings, we continue to work together. And uh, if officially, for example, the um, AMA 2050 project is finished, I can say that we continue to collaborate because, for example, in September, we want the person of our National Agency of Meteorology and uh, the other one of Emergency uh, Committee in the Abidjan to talk about flooding area and flooding risk situation in the West Africa also. But, uh, that means that we are continuing to be in contact and working together. Great. And Janito, I'm going to lastly go to you then about what you think is uh, some of the key ways we should be engaging with city decision makers to co-create solutions. I think the the biggest experience I had uh, so far in life in terms of learning, I'm I'm coming from the uh, natural uh, science side and sometimes we tend to be very uh, dictatorial in terms of um, if you don't understand numbers, then I think you should, I mean, try to position yourself. Uh, and yeah, and I learned a lot during this process. The first thing that you have to do is to to be humble. Be humble. Once you start engaging with them, I think uh, one of the things that uh, you should do is to uh, present them with a topic and let them speak first because they have their daily concerns and they want to solve a problem. They have got their own strategy, which is not wrong, but apparently it's failing because there are some misconceptions or poor understanding of some of the underlying uh, um, uh, aspects. So let them speak first and and let them speak in their own language. Uh, you try to, to, to merge with the scenario, try to understand what they're doing, try to understand their language, and once you find a, a, a converging point of, let's say, of concern, because you're also concerned with your research and they're concerned with their, with their uh, daily activities, with their, with their projects, with their plans, once you find the sweet spot, then take off from there. Once you take off from there, you try to co-produce knowledge with them, uh, uh, support them, whichever means you, you are able to in their, uh, let's say, if they're organizing, for example, an event, and they want your facilitation skills to be part of it, just go there and support them. I think uh, that that is priceless. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, you see all 
gates are open, you go wherever you want, you have the meeting with people you never thought you would meet uh, uh, before. That's fantastic. I think it really points from all of your responses that the key to all of this is the relationships. And uh, you can't really do anything unless you have that strong relationship with your decision maker. Um, So that's the basis for co-creating a solution. I just want to thank all of you for your time today, uh, for for your great insights and for sharing some of the great learning that's coming out of your, your different projects. To end off this discussion, let's hear about some of the challenges facing cities in East Africa. We've asked one of the High Crystal team members to tell us about some of the impacts of climate change on water, sanitation and hygiene systems in Kampala, Uganda and Kusumu, Kenya. Professor Barbara Evans is the Chair of Public Health Engineering at University of Leeds and leads High Crystal's urban work. So I think when people think about climate risks and WASH, what they often think about is water supply and particularly water shortages, but perhaps a neglected issue is the impact of the increased risk of intense rainfall on urban infrastructure. So if we take Kisumu, for example, it has relatively low coverage of sanitation and quite significant parts of the system which are not fully joined up. So we have a lot of on-site systems, pits and tanks, which um, are frequently very full of faecal waste, may not have been emptied for quite some time. And many of those are situated in quite low-lying areas, particularly where low-income informal settlements are. So what we tend to see is a really serious intersection between flooding and inadequate sanitation. So you have populations, possibly already quite vulnerable populations, placed at risk in extreme flood events. But then on top of that, those floods are highly contaminated because the sanitation system is not complete and not working very well. So one of the things that we're really interested in is understanding how cities like Kisumu and Kampala can organise their sanitation services and other related infrastructure services better so as to mitigate the risk of this um, of this intersection between flooding and poor sanitation. Uh, we've been developing some models which couple together hydraulic flood models um, and we can drive those with future climate uh, predicted rainfall events so we can see how future flooding might change as rainfall becomes more intense as the rainy seasons change in duration. So you might get more intense rainfall falling on more saturated ground. And then we can couple those modified flood models with information about the sanitation system. Um, We can also look at how future population growth might change. So we can start to see how a future flood event, which is overlaying an inadequate sanitation system, might result in increased direct health risk, health and well-being risk to the population. Um, What we're able to do with those models is then look at what different um, policy interventions might do in terms of alleviating some of the worst effects of those climate-driven changes in the future. So we've been looking, for example, at the implications of more actively managing sanitation systems. So we move a lot of the faecal waste out of the area more regularly so that when a flood occurs, there's just less pollutant, less faecal matter and therefore less hazard uh, in the environment where people are. Uh, We've also been looking at whether or not there's critical access infrastructure. So, for example, roads, culverts, drainage, which can be resized so that in a flood event or in anticipation of of a second flood event, for example, you could guarantee there'll be access for sludge trucks so that we can 
actively go into areas which have been uh, already badly affected by flooding and poor sanitation. We can do a clean up very rapidly, which renders the whole situation less vulnerable if a second flood is to arrive. Um, the way we've done this is through these very simple coupled models so that we're able to talk to the technical teams in a very sophisticated way, but also talk to politicians and look at how we might be able to reduce, um, even from today's baseline levels, the, the health implications of poor sanitation through these active management approaches. And of course, we can also look at what would happen if we shift people from different from one type of sanitation to another. So if we were to shift a lot of people who have large pit latrines at the moment to using container-based systems, which can be much more actively managed more easily, or shifting people to sewage systems, all of those things can then be looked at in terms of the direct benefits that we can attribute to future climate changes. Um, we're really interested, actually, in the fact that what this does is it brings together not only the public health teams and the infrastructure teams, but also municipal government and community groups to think about the role that communities can play in flood awareness, the role of behaviour change in terms of mitigating these risks. And the other thing that's been really positive about this experience is that we've uh, co collaborated with several other major research projects which have been going on, particularly in Kampala. So we've been able to collaborate with several other major research projects which are being carried out in Kampala. And what's been really great is to see um, how the local authority, um, Kampala City Council and the water utility have been really making use of opportunities to engage with research groups, not just the uh, High Crystal team, but also other groups looking at how health risks are propagated by the sanitation system. So it's really nice to see the work of High Crystal leveraging together with other projects funded from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for example, to really give us a very rich picture of how sanitation and the climate are interacting and how we can really think about redesigning the system to improve future resilience to weather-related shocks. It's clear that cities have the potential to be the front-runners in providing innovative solutions to climate change. But how do we get cities to plan a proactive strategy against climate change? We've invited Dr. Wilma Nanchito, a co-principal investigator on the Fractal Project and a lecturer in the Geography Department at the University of Zambia to weigh in on this subject. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Let's jump right in. Wilma, the Fractal Project specifically looked at how we can get cities to consider climate information when making decisions. I wonder if we could start by asking you what your thoughts are on cities being well-placed to lead in delivering the solutions to climate change. For us in Lusaka City, I think we felt that cities are best placed because cities are centers of decision making, whether it's central government or the private sector or NGOs, they usually have their headquarters, they usually have their experts based in cities. So if it when it comes to finding the solutions, these people are the best suited to come together and come up with the solutions for climate change. Cities also have um a wide range of actors um, and the high densities. And you find that they will invariably have um, a large number of innovative ideas which can be gleaned from these people who live in the cities. And if you find a solution, a city will provide a large number of people 
who can be impacted by that solution. So for us, these are some of the reasons we felt that cities are best place to produce the knowledge and also to um, test the knowledge once it had been produced in the context of climate change. So in summary, I think cities have the means and they also have the numbers to deal with the solutions to climate change. In fact, we used a city learning approach where we used learning labs, city dialogues and embedded researchers to co-explore burning issues in cities like Lusaka and co-deliver solutions. Dr. Nchito, could you please tell us about the city learning process in Lusaka and explain what these learning labs and city dialogues are? So since we knew that from the onset, um, we needed to get buy-in on these climate issues from the key stakeholders in the city, uh, we needed to get them to sit at the same table, so to speak, so that we could understand what they knew about climate issues and where they thought the main problems were. And the learning lab um, approach, which was already being used in South Africa, seemed to be the best solution you know, or the best approach to get all these various stakeholders sitting at the same table and talking. So between 2016 and 2019, the Lusaka Fractal team, which in itself was a very multidisciplinary team, held several learning labs. This approach uses various activities. It also uses brainstorming sessions. Um, to not only uh, learn from the people who are talking, but to also create knowledge. Because when people are talking, sometimes they'll say things which they think are not important, but to you who's listening, they are very um, important issues and they give you the light bulb moments. So we, we, we would have over maybe 20 experts, people from different institutions, government institutions, we had private sector, and we also had people from the grassroots. So we, you, we got a wide range of people, we would take them out of their normal spaces, have them sit together, and usually it was over uh, two days, sometimes even three days, talking and um, discussing these issues. So for us in Lusaka, we, we had the inaugural learning lab, which was um, setting the tone and bringing out the burning issues. So the, the, the participants themselves discussed over hours, had um, activities over climate change, and they came up with eight burning issues initially, which were whittled down to four. So learning labs allow the participants themselves to come up with the idea. It's not a top-down um, approach. It allows people involved in the city to brainstorm and to come up with what they all agree are the main issues which were affecting the city of Lusaka around climate change. And from there, after the burning issues were agreed upon, the following learning labs um, started investigating these four different burning issues. So for instance, in Lusaka, we had inadequate water supply and sanitation at city scale. We had declining groundwater. We had increasing flooding. And the fourth one was groundwater pollution as the main burning issues. So for each learning lab, would then from then on have experts dealing in these um, various issues, giving a talk, and then again, would brainstorm, we try to find ways around how as a city we can solve these problems. The learning labs also included um, field trips. So for instance, if we're looking at water supply, 
in Lusaka, we had a field trip to Iolanda, which is the main um, uplift for our water for, for the city from the Kafue River. So even if people live in Lusaka, you realize that they don't really know where their water comes from. And the, the minute they, you show them where their water comes from, that makes them have this um, connection and it makes them want to care for it even more. So the learning lab is, is a two-way process. We as the researchers were learning and the participants were also learning quite a bit. The learning lab approach seems to have been really fundamental in, in transforming the relationships between the sort of researchers and the city officials. Could you maybe give us a bit more information about what kind of climate information the city of Lusaka decided to use in the end and, and what sort of things that influenced having that kind of climate information? For us in the city, working under Fractal, um, we got inf climate information from CSAC. It was very, very detailed, very, very technical. And of course, we asked them to present it in a, in a simpler manner where a, a, lay, a lay person could understand it. And I think CSAC did a good job because within our Osaka team, we had a member from there. And the explanations on um, future uh, predictions of climate change, future predictions of rainfall, uh, future predictions of temperature um, were given. Because that's, that's the easiest um, information that someone can understand. If you tell someone that it's going to be hotter, they will open their eyes and listen to you. And it will be hotter by two degrees, they'll listen even more. If you tell someone that we'll have um, rainfall variability where we have um, shorter rainy seasons, but more intense. And intense rainfall in a shorter period means flooding. The, the, the local authority would listen because they know that flooding means problems for them. So we used um, that level of analysis, a very basic interpretation so that the lay person could understand in our presentations. But there were also technical, there were these graphs um, which showed the predictions over a 10-year period. There were, there were also graphs showing the rainfall for the past 100 years showing us that we've, we've been facing a decrease in, 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 in rainfall in the city. So if you are a, an expert from the, the water utility, you'll be worried about your groundwater levels if someone from a, a climatologist is telling you that. So that's the type of um, climate information that, that we used. Could you give us an example of how Lusaka has benefited from this? Um, Lusaka has benefited from this because, for instance, we were fortunate as a, as a city project under Fractal. We worked together with Lusaka Water Security Initiative, which is called LUCI. LUCI is a collaborative platform which brings together various stakeholders who are all interested in ensuring that Lusaka is a water secure city. So under the Fractal project, we worked closely with um, Lucy and we were able to share our information, for instance, the, the climate change information with the partners, with the stakeholders under Lucy and also create awareness for them on what the scenarios are in terms of Lusaka and climate change in future. Factor played an important role in getting cities to be open and receptive to including climate change considerations, but projects like Factor only run for a limited time period. In your opinion, what needs to still happen in the long term for cities like Lusaka to become more resilient to climate change? 
Yes, like all projects, they don't last forever. But um, for instance, I talked about the, the learning lab process and how effective it was. For us in Fractal, we worked closely with um, a collaborative platform within Lusaka. It's called the Lusaka Water and Security Initiative. So we were already working with people who are invested in ensuring that water, that, that there's water security in the city. And of course, they did, they, they, they acknowledge the fact that climate change will affect water security. And they also acknowledge that energy will also affect climate change. So we're, all, we're already on the same level with this um, collaborative platform. And um, from the Fractal project, we ended up training. There was a realization that if we're going to have change in the city, uh, the city council has needed to get involved because they are the change makers, especially on, on the ground. They are the ones who make the decisions. For instance, they give land where they're not supposed to give land and it turns into flooding. So we thought we can make all these policies in our offices, but if we don't get to these people and tell them the impacts or teach them the impacts of climate change, we're not going to be successful. So for, for, for us in Fractal, we held the training of councillors in climate change, which went on well. And I think the, the, the councillors appreciated the impact and they, they, they accepted the fact that sometimes they were to blame. So where, when you've trained a councillor, they will also speak to their people. So that will be a continuity. So there's some level of, of trickle down of knowledge into the community. So we expect that there are some people in the community who appreciate that they shouldn't build in certain areas, they shouldn't uh, fill up the drainages and because uh, it will cause flooding. So that's one side of how fractal will, the impacts of fractal will continue um, in the long term because we've, we've, we've disseminated that knowledge down to a certain level of people within the community. On the other hand, um, we've also built relationships. Remember we talked about having, I talked about having someone from the grassroots talking to an expert within um, an, a government institution. So these relationships have continued. We've seen them continue within Fractal, where if um, someone in the grassroots is having an issue, for instance, there's flooding in the, they know who to call in the local authority. Or if someone from the water utility is having problems moving people off their, their land or people are encroaching their land, they know who to call within the local authority or they know who to call within the community itself. So these um, collaborate, collaborative relationships have come out of Fractal and in, 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 in some way, we have seen them continue. And so Fractal, though it ended, the, the impact is still being felt. But however, there must be at the end of the day, the, the role of central government in all this. So central government must lead the way. So we in Fractal created, um, we wrote four policy briefs, which were um, taken to a higher level where we've talked about the four burning issues and what needs to, what is happening and what needs to be done. So the next stage is for government um, to take responsibility and come up with measures, come up with policies which will make city, the city more resilient. And that they, they need to make decisions which are, are which take into consideration all the uh, different actors. Thank you, Wilma, for sharing the excellent work that you do. 
What an interesting episode. So much is happening in African cities to tackle climate risks. Brenda, what are your key insights from these conversations? Two things that stood out for me is the importance of having expertise close to decision makers uh, to recognize that climate scientists are the ones that usually have the information, but the ones that will implement the change are often the people that you may not expect. For example, community members that have the influence. And this is exactly why it's important to bridge the gap between research and practice. Um, Secondly, a tailor-made approach is important in different cities because each city is responding to a unique set of challenges and risks. And so the solutions need to fit their context. For me, the key message is that African cities are facing multiple challenges. So to get climate resilience on the agenda, strong relationships between city officials, communities and researchers are absolutely critical. High levels of trust and humility are needed to work effectively together. Knowing who to coordinate with is a really important step to make sure actions happen on the ground. We've come to the end of this episode. Thank you for tuning in. We would love to hear from our listeners. And if you have any burning questions or comments, please email info at futureclimateafrica.org. If you'd like to learn more about the work mentioned on this podcast, please visit futureclimateafrica.org. You can also follow us on Twitter on the handle at future underscore climate or on LinkedIn under Future Climate for Africa. Take a look at the podcast show notes for any of the links you may have missed. Join us again next time for more groundbreaking African climate research and stories.